from our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Zach, what's going on? How you been, man? Doing pretty good. Pretty good, man. You know, uh, like you, I think uh, glad to, well, I guess I shouldn't assume anything, but it's glad to make it through um, Passover with, uh, you know, it's hard to go the the eight days without bread and, and other 11 products. It's a, it's always a little rough on me. It's, it's, you, you know what I miss the most? Oh, I did. I, I got a strong will, I got to say. But the thing I miss the most is, uh, is pizza, man. It's just like, it's like the one I can, I can, I can avoid bread. Like I don't need sandwiches that often. I can go without like pasta, although that hurts a little bit, but man, it's just like inevitably during Passover, I get like a, a really, really strong craving for pizza. And it's like, it's always like the third day. And I'm like, fuck, I got so long to go. Well, I mean, pizza is like the best thing ever. I mean, I'm not arguing that. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, we make matzah pizza, which is like, it's it's sad, but it does the trick just barely. Um, for all of you non-observant Jews or non-Jews out there, I'm sorry, this is a little... Uh, little uh inside way in the weeds yeah <laughs> but that's uh, that's what's been on my mind because it just you know we just kind of made it through and i'm just like oh finally um that, what's that, the best that, pizza in seattle oh man you're putting me on the spot here um my favorite personally so okay i'm gonna i'm gonna exclude the pizza restaurants at the company i work for because it's not really uh i can't i can't i can't take that into account fairly but uh delancey which is uh not far actually from where my wife and i live is uh is my go-to it's uh you know it's thin crust uh, neapolitan style but just really really excellent and i generally i prefer that style because frankly and and i will give you this for sure on the new york city versus seattle battle i suppose such as it is uh you cannot get good new york style pizza here they're just it's okay but it's nothing like being in new york and it's part of the reason why i go yeah. to new york pretty often I mean, New York has great pizza. It does. It's got a few things that we just cannot get right here. It's a baked goods, weirdly. Pizza, bagels, that kind of thing. It's Can't weird. Do it I wonder why our, I wonder why that is, right? Because like it's – there's so many restaurants. So for example, like there's so many restaurants here in uh, Seattle – Houston, Atlanta, Chicago, whatever, they can make like really great Neapolitan style pizza, right? Like A16 in San Francisco makes incredible mm-hmm. ne- Neapolitan style. But like – why can no one make a good bagel? <laughs> so right? like, answer, we've all figured out how to make the Italian style, you know, Naples, Napoli style pizza, but no one else can make a good bagel. Yeah, I really don't know. And you know, the the only explanation I've heard that that seems vaguely, yeah, that's the one I've heard too. I mean, I, I guess it's got to be something about the mineral content. I, there was a story, there was a place out here in this area that where the guy was like bringing water in from New York, which seemed insane to me. And I don't think it lasted very long, but like that was how serious he was about trying to get bagels. Right. Uh, I just, I think it's, it's gotta be that. Cause I can't think of anything else that would explain it. Cause it's not like, you know, bakers in New York aren't using like different flour or like, it's not like people haven't moved from New York to Seattle or whatever other part of the country yeah. that know how to make bagels, but they just, they're, they're okay. But I've never, I've never had one that is, that's as good as the good bagels in New York. And there are a lot of them, thankfully. So totally. now this is like, I, like I am hungry now. Uh, this is an unfortunate, I have not had lunch yet when we, as we're recording this. So this is an unfortunately time podcast. Let's start talking about drinks so that we can, at least, uh, we can at least be, uh, be more on topic and, and I won't be as hungry. So I, so, t- so today's topic is one that you and I have chatted about a little bit uh, back and forth. And it's one that I'm really passionate about. And I don't know if I'm angry enough today to to really tackle it because I really wanted to be like super angry. But basically, uh, this this topic uh, that I think is is really interesting is basically the sommelier obsession with champagne. And I think like before we get into that, because I think you're going to be like, "What's so wrong with being obsessed with champagne?" I want to be very clear. I love champagne. I think champagne's awesome. 
I think that other sparkling wines are great too, though. I think, you know, Prosecco is great. I think Trento Doc is great. I think Cava is great. I think, uh, you know, Cremant Alsace and Cremant Bourgogne are all great wines. You know, even Franciacorta, great wine. I have been bothered recently, though, by what I've continued to notice in the Somme community with this deep obsession with only champagne and champagne at all costs any everywhere, right? So what I I think what I mentioned to you and what sort of brought this topic to the fore, and I want to understand because these are this is your tribe, your Assam, <laughs> is you know, when I go to other places to drink wine, you know, when I'm in Italy or when I'm in uh Spain, et cetera, I want to drink the wines from those places. And I feel like when I've been with Psalms, all they want to do is drink champagne. And then if it's not champagne, Burgundy. And I just don't understand because I feel like if you're if you're of a profession that claims that you, you know, are so passionate about wine that you wanted to get into it as your livelihood, don't you want to be so excited that you want to drink the wines of the place that you're in? Why do you only want to drink champagne? Why do you only want to drink, you know, Grand Cru Burgundy? And why are those the wines that, you know, are the only wines you get really, really excited about? To me, it just begins to feel super elitist. Like all, you know, like if I'm in Italy and I discover a $9 bottle of amazing wine, that's what I want to drink while I'm there. I don't need to be at the restaurant and be like, you know, like I think what we should do is there's like there's some champagne on the list and like, oh my god, they have some really well-priced burgundy. Let's get that instead. I actually think that that makes you less connected to the world of wine than you think you are. Why? And, and is am I crazy? Because first of all, I want to be like, am I crazy? Because if this is just like a, the group of people I've wound up hanging out with, then first of all, I probably should find some new people to hang out with. <laughs> um, but if it's not, like – and you know, I and I and I don't think it is because I've seen this phenomenon also a lot on Instagram. Oh, I want to understand yeah. why, and I'm hoping that you, Zach, can explain it to me. Okay, I'm going to do my best, and and uh, you know, I'm going to say I'm going to say this uh, in two different ways. I think the first is that I think I don't think you're crazy. I think there is something that is a little bit worrisome, and frankly, a little disrespectful to to the place you are in when when you travel and you say and especially i mean i think this is disrespectful just as a as a person generally you know i think it's disrespectful if people travel to foreign countries and go seek out a burger king and i think it's disrespectful if people travel to a foreign country and they say oh well i don't want to i don't want to uh you know try anything local i don't want to try the local wine i mean you're in italy for god's sake it's not like you're in a place where there is no local wine or you know I'll admit, like when my wife and I were in Poland a couple of years ago, we tried a little bit of Polish wine. But like when we were out drinking, we were drinking other things from Europe. And like that's I don't think a problem. You know, the, the, the Polish wine industry itself would admit that, you know, it's it's a work in progress. Um, and and but if you're somewhere, you know, a, re- a very, very reputable wine producing region and country in and of itself, then it it is insane to to focus on only a couple of regions that aren't even in that country. And like I like you love champagne. It's one of my favorite wines. It's one of my favorite categories. And in sparkling wine more broadly, and I think you and I, you know, did a really great podcast a while back on some champagne alternatives. If you guys are out there like, oh yeah, I like sparkling wine too, and, and you want some other options. But I think that there is there is a what can I say? It's a, you're right, it is elitist. There is something about those wines in particular, and maybe a few others, but it but it's definitely champagne and really highly sought after Burgundy that have a cachet to them. And if you are a sommelier who is traveling to Europe, you may 
only be able to afford those wines in Europe, where generally the cost is less on a list than it would be in the States. And maybe you don't even have access to some of those wines because they're not imported to the U.S. or they're only imported in incredibly small quantities and you can't get your hands on them. And there's maybe a little bit more availability in certain parts of Europe. And yeah, you want to show off. I mean, that is what so much of this comes down to, right? Because I don't think your issue or my issue is what these people are drinking if their alcohol consumption is kept private. But it's inevitably not because there are a lot of sommeliers and other people in the wine industry who seem to drink solely for their Instagram profile. And they are conspicuous about their consumption. And nothing is more conspicuous in the world of consumption in wine than champagne. And I don't think it's a surprise that people who are seemingly more interested in promoting their brand than, I don't know, enjoying where they're at, are going to gravitate towards champagne. And whether that is, you know, tete de cuvee champagne from the big houses or, you know, very highly sought after small production. Oh, dude, it's champagne. only small fucking production. It's only well, grower. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know much. that too. Or Krug, yeah. right? Like it's grower, it's <laughs> grower and Krug. Like that's, that's like what's allowed to be cool. And I just don't get it because for me, it's like, how do you, how do you say that you're this true wine lover, but like, you actually, you know, don't want to drink the wines in the place you are. You'd rather drink champagne. I, I really, I just, I don't get it. I really don't. And also, aren't there other great sparkling wines? Like, I think that champagne is great. But again, isn't there, aren't there other sparkling wines that are just as good as champagne? I mean, you know, you, I, I, this is a hard question for me to answer because I think. So go the answer. Best, the, the best champagnes are, I think qualitatively to me better than any other sparkling wine that I have had. And well, I think there's two reasons. I think one reason is that there is a a degree of, I guess, complexity for lack of a better way to describe it, that you get out of some of these really, really well-made, um, you know, sort of great vintage champagnes. Who Who are these people? What are these vintages? I I really, I honestly want to know. Well, I would say like, you know, there are whether they're the the sort of the 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 growers. I mean, this is not my area of um, of total expertise because I this is not my habit of going out and drinking them. But I I would say that like um, producers Defend like your people. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm going to say this. So producers like um, Baresh to some extent. I mean, I've I've never been a huge fan of the Salos wines, but there are oh, people you who don't like Jacques Salos. I, 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 th- I mean, that's just like the best wine ever. Yeah, well, they they can revoke my pin if they want, but um, <laughs> you know, I think even you know some some of the some of the like uh, growers, frankly, that have been around for a while, but but are still really making excellent wine, like Pierre Peters, uh, Pierre Gimenez. Um, so those, those those produce some of my absolute favorite champagnes, and I just part of it might be a lack of availability. It's possible that there are producers in Franciacorta or or in Cava who are making single vineyard vintage. Uh, French Accordas or Cavas respectively that are comparable and maybe they just are not making it. A, I don't, I'm not trying them. They're not coming to Seattle or, or I'm not getting a chance to taste them. And hey, if you guys are out there and you want to come to Seattle and taste me on these wines, I would love to. And I would love to come back on this podcast and say, you know what? I was wrong. The best sparkling wine in the world isn't in Champagne. But part of it is just it is a region that is totally devoted to sparkling wine and it has been focusing on it for centuries. And for all the shit that we may give France and Champagne, there are times when they are doing it best. And I think this is one of them. Look, look. But but it's mm. but it's let me finish my point really quickly, which is at the same time though, I don't really fucking care because frankly, like 
I don't want to spend the kind of money that I have to spend for really high-end champagne very often or ever, frankly. If someone else wants to buy it for me, great. If I offered a glass of it, great. But it's not going to be a thing I'm going to gravitate towards because the difference, the, the qualitative distinction is small. It's, I think, there. But if I can spend $150 on or $200 on one of these wines as a retail or, you know, two or three, 400 on, in a restaurant, or I can spend $45 on an almost as good sparkling wine from somewhere else, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm not made of money. <laughs> See, because you know? I would argue, I don't know. Like, I, I just, I feel like I would argue that a lot of the, the, the attraction to champagne and the attraction to some of these wines is just that it's the same reason that they sell so well in VIP services. Like, you know, in the VIP, it's, it's a baller move to be drinking champagne, right? It's a brand. You're attracted to a brand. And I actually, I think if I blinded you on some really high quality wines made in champagne compared to high quality sparklings made with the same grapes in, let's say, Trento Doc or even Franciacorta or, you know, let's let's even say like in California, I bet you could not tell. Well, it sounds like a challenge. I maybe we'll have to do like a video podcast one of these times, and we can we can see we can see how that goes. Uh, and I think most people could do it because look, oh, I think sure. I think part of the appeal of champagne is the brand, and that's where I think that's why I'm upset because I feel like as a wine professional, you are supposed to be an every person, right? You're supposed to not just be all caught up in the brand. If you're if you're truly someone who wants to bring wine to the people, which is what I think a lot of, and, and I'm really talking to like people our age who are psalms, right? I'm not talking to the older set of psalms. I'm talking to our generation here. Like you gotta like you gotta help grow our wine culture, and you, and it's not growing our wine culture by just being obsessed with champagne. Again, I think champagne is awesome, but if that's if that's like what you're projecting out there, and also if you're and if you're then projecting out there, by the way, like you're obsessed with champagne, but you're only obsessed with the small growers, so the, the shit that most of the people in the in this country can't find, right? Because you won't because you won't deign to drink the big houses, then you just kind of come off as a fucking snob, and you just are reinforcing the stereotype that everyone has about people who work in the wine industry, which is that deep down they're snobby and they think they're better than the consumer they're serving. Well, so I, I think there is some of that and there are definitely examples of people for whom the exclusivity and the hard to get your hands on nature of some of these wines is their very appeal. And that sucks. And those people suck and they should not be doing what they're doing and they should be not, should not be given the platform that they are given I, I hate to say it, but a couple, sometimes Vinepair gives them a platform. But um, I will say this at the, on the flip fine, side. Fine, fine. Okay. Yeah. We, I know we do. <laughs> on the flip side, well, again, I will say that. We're, a big, we're a big editorial product. This is just, this podcast is basically my opinion, right? Like editorials are a lot, a lot larger. I'm just sharing my opinion. It's not the opinion yeah, of Vinepair. Absolutely. So, what the, the flip side to this, though, I would say is that I do think that there has to be some allowance made for the fact that sommeliers and other people uh, in their, in that, general field, someone like you who works in wine and beverage specifically, part of our value, I think, are the, the thing that we add to the conversation, the thing that we, if we do it well, we provide to our guests, to our readers, to our listeners, is the ability to explore, to try new things, to not just stick to wines that are widely available. Because, you know, we had this conversation in, in a sort of oblique way with Eric Asimov about you know how does he talk, how does he decide what to cover right does he only write about wines that every one of his list of his readers can find 
No, he has to make in some cases a decision that, yes, some of my readership may not be able to get some of these smaller production wines from slightly off the beaten path places or even from well-known regions where it's just a small producer. You know, there's only so much wine to go around. Um, And yet he, I think, correctly says, you know, there's there's something that can be added to the conversation to people's understanding of wine from talking about these wines, even if not everyone can get them. And I do think that for for a well-intentioned sommelier or a well-intentioned wine writer or podcast host, there is value in talking about wines that are not widely available and not necessarily super easy to get your hands on if you can explain, for one, why these things are worthwhile and you're not a complete asshole about it. And I think that, to me, is is the issue. It's not so much those specific wines that these people are championing because, championing, because some of them are really fucking good, but it's the manner in which they do it. It's the, I got to do this, I get to do this thing, and fuck you, you never will. And I think that is the thing that you and I have pushed back against in a lot of different ways on this podcast is that attitude of like, you're never going to get to do this. Let me rub it in your face because that's the bullshit part of it. It's not the here's a great wine. You might have to work to find it, but hey, maybe I'll help you or maybe, you know, we can find something that's comparable. It's this. I got there. I did this. I found it and it's gone and you're fucked kind of attitude. Right. And that that really I mean, I think that that's the other thing, too, is like for me, it's just the, the thing that has to go in some culture is this you know, attachment to these like unicorn bottles or that, or that that's really, that's all that's shared on social. Right. Cause I think, you know, that, that's then what paints the picture is that like, I got to have something that you didn't have and I'm super cool. But at the end of the day, that, that actually, I think what, what people aren't realizing is that that makes you less relatable, not more relatable and really only cool to the other people who work in your profession that may have been able to, also encounter those bottles at one time or another. Yeah. Well, I think this is a huge, uh, a really good point. And I think I want to, since it seems like we're kind of moving a little bit past champagne specifically, I think it's a really good, it's a really good sort of avenue to explore this question that I have, which is, I think there are definitely people in the sommelier community who have learned that they can, I don't know, self-promote themselves in a way as, you know, the person who has this, you know, endless series of incredible experiences and where you don't, I mean, they're not even really interested in portraying themselves as a sommelier anymore. They want to be, you know, the person who lives the, you know, the glamour wine lifestyle and whether that's traveling a bunch because, you know, as our uh, previous conversation about pay to play touched on, you know, maybe they're getting, uh, you know, wine and dined around the globe, or maybe they're just getting brought in. You know, I love it when people, when you see people who are like showing off bottles and you're like, I know for a fact that, someone at your restaurant brought that bottle in and you maybe got to taste a quarter of an ounce of it. And like, okay, cool. You want to talk about how amazing it was great, but you had like two sips max, like let's calm down a little bit. And you know, those people are, you know, whatever they're, whether it's a, a, a savvy business decision or just a certain kind of insecurity about their own place in the world. And they have to kind of promote themselves beyond their station. I, I don't know, but I do think one thing that, that is important is, you know, I try when I post stuff on on social media and I'm not, <laughs> I don't have that many followers and I'm not that influential. So maybe this doesn't matter, but I think it's still, it's still a good practice in general. You know, I try really hard to post things that are across a really wide spectrum because this is what I drink, you know, so whether it's stylistically different from different places and different price points. And, you know, I don't drink a lot of super expensive wine because I can't afford it and people don't generally just Most of us can. Most of us can. Yeah. And so to me, I think, you know, you can tell, right, when someone's when someone's postings are nothing but 
old vintages of champagne or grand cru burgundy or you know sort of similar you know unicorn wines or just these incredibly expensive bottles you know that person is either you know, they're posting shit that they're not really even trying, you know, they're snagging bottles off someone's table that they brought in and they're posting it like they got to drink it or, you know, there's a lot of shadiness that happens in what people post. But also like, those people are just like, what are they adding to the conversation? I mean, you can just go, you know, you can go read a book about those wines if you want. It's, it's, it's at least as useful, maybe more useful. And, you know, the rest of us who want to post our wine, we want to use the hashtag Psalm Life, which I know you fucking hate. Uh, it's responsible. <laughs> it's responsible. It, it, it's incumbent upon us to be responsible about how we do that and to, you know, post stuff that, yeah, that is that are that our followers, whether they're in the profession or not, you might be able to actually try. And, and you know, I, I get occasionally asked by people like, oh, like, you know, tell me about that wine. And it's I, I don't want to be like, oh, well, actually, you know, uh, some guy who, you know, has been collecting wine for 40 years, brought it into my restaurant and I opened it for him. Yeah. And like I maybe I got to, you know, smell the bottle after they were done, but I don't know anything about it. Like I want to post stuff that I can legitimately say I tried and had a glass of at least, if not the whole fucking bottle, which sometimes happens too. Uh, and, and I think that's just, you know, we have to ask more of this community because, you know, we have sort of put a lot of weight on what sommeliers do and think and and say about wine and i think there's a lot of value to that and and i think there's something to be said about people who who are despite you know kind of are trashing them to some extent in this podcast who are generally pretty excited about wine and passionate yeah. about wine and are not just in it for the lifestyle but but who need to be reined in because sometimes that passion and excitement can very quickly yeah sort of turn into this like one-upsmanship about you know, what's the craziest bottle of wine you've had lately? And it's like, that shit is not useful to anyone. Well, I don't I guess, want to hear it. And I work in the field. And I guess that's the thing. It's like, I, I, I don't, I, there's a lot of people who work in the profession, you know, whether they're certified sommeliers or they're not, who I have a lot of respect for and I think are awesome. I want to shut down the rest of them. You know, <laughs> I, I basically, I want to say like, look, this isn't good for the wine culture, right? Like this, this, attitude of like, hey, you know, only baller bottles allowed. I think makes you an elitist. And like if you you and, and look, I think that's fine if you want to then say if you're if you're willing to admit you're an elitist. I have no problem with people like in the world of fashion who want to say like look, I mean, I'm a brand person. I I'm, I'm not going to wear Uniqlo and stuff like that. I'm going to wear Prada and Gucci and whatever and like I've made my money and I've got that money and I'm going to flaunt it and that's my thing. I think that's fine. You know, at least you're being real. You're not saying like Oh, well, you know, that's just, that's because that's all I like. Right. I think, or, or you're also not saying like, but, but I'm, I'm still with the people like, no, you're not, you know, like you're, you're, you're now the, the bourgeoisie. That's fine. But I think it's the same with this, this idea of, of, I think a lot of Psalms who, or people who work in wine, who, who want to be for the people, but then they're not for the people because they only want to talk about these really high end bottles of wine and things like champagne. And I think then you should admit, like, look, you're actually not for the people. You want to exist and be a wine professional that works with the super elite and the people that can afford those bottles. Because those are the people that are bringing those bottles into the restaurants and who are popping them and allowing you to have tastes of them. And that's completely fine, especially if you work at a high-end restaurant. But, like, I think decide what you want to be in, in the profession, you know? And and then don't get mad when someone who's not on that side of the profession says, like, you know, you're kind of an elitist. Like, you're on the elitist side of wine. Then don't get mad, like no, I'm not. I'm really for the people because you're not, and and, and like as long as you're cool with that, I, I don't have a problem, you know. But if you're if you if you want to get all mad and have fights with people on Twitter and and Instagram about how 
you know, you're really totally down to earth, but then all you post is about these, you know, really hard to get wines that are super expensive. You're not. That's all. You know, I will say this too. I think there is a way in which those kinds of people tend to gravitate towards certain parts of the country. And I think New York City is definitely one of them. I, I think San Francisco is another. No, I love New York. Look, I, I just would say, I will say this. There is, if you are the kind of person for whom opening very expensive bottles of wine for the ultra wealthy is your is the thing you get off on you're going to end up in a couple of different cities you know you're going to end up like i said in new york or vegas or san francisco or maybe la maybe chicago a little bit and you're going to end up working in a few different you know in a few places and you're going to do that and you're going to be the person who gets to try a lot of those wines and gets to post about them on instagram and all that and that's i mean I, again i don't think there's anything wrong with that i do think though that those communities tend to be self-reinforcing and it can, tends to be this whole kind of like incestuous little group of people who think that 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 is the pinnacle of working in the wine industry and of being a sommelier and you know i who am i to disagree with them other than that i do <laughs> and i think that there is you know the, the to me it does not take a lot of does not necessarily take a lot of skill or a lot of knowledge to extract large sums of money from extremely wealthy people with nothing else to spend it on you know you have to be a certain kind of salesperson and you maybe have to be able to, you know, kind of uh, put on the put on the, um, you know, sort of put put it all together for them. But at the same time, like those kinds of diners, those kinds of drinkers, they know who they are. They know the money they have to spend and they will spend it on on whatever they want, whether or not you're good at your job. And I think that for the rest of us in the wine industry, we have to be able to connect to people for whom wine is not, you know, is not just a is not just a, a staple and is not a sort of part of this larger lifestyle. It is, you know, the spending money on wine is a choice that they are making. It is a, uh, you know, they are choosing to spend money on wine that they could legitimately use for something else that they might actually want or need in not just in this sort of ephemeral way, but, you know, in a meaningful way. And so if you are suggesting to them that the best wines they, they can have or the wines they should be having are hundreds of dollars a bottle or more, you are probably not doing them a service. And, that can be fine. Like you said, if you want to be someone who caters to the top 10th of a percent in this world, then cool. You know, those, there's those people always want to hire, want people to do shit for them. But the rest of us who want to exist in a world where wine is something that everyone can, or almost everyone can enjoy. And that we can have a conversation with people who enjoy wine, who don't have more than 15 or 20 bucks to spend on a bottle. We have to keep that in mind and we can't lose our minds over wines that no one can buy. I agree. I think, you know, one of these things I think to, to build on your point you're making that is a really fun game to play is uh, ask someone that works in wine um, to name their top five bottles that they sell. So either on their list or, um, you know, in their shop, right? If none of those bottles they name are in the what we would consider affordable range, the person's out of touch. And like, I think if you really want to take this career seriously, you have to be able to fall in love with wines that are affordable and that are approachable to the consumer too. It can't just be wines that are baller that of course we all universally can admit are great. It has to also be wines that are awesome at 15 bucks. So I think what or you're else. saying is, is like you can love champagne, but you should also love Cremant and Prosecco and yeah. – and, and like I that. think that when you're in a place where those wines are made, 
when you have the opportunity to, to bring this full circle, right? When you're a place where those wines are made and you have an opportunity to learn about those wines so that you can better sell those wines to consumer, don't drink fucking champagne. <laughs> if you want to drink champagne, go to champagne. Go to champagne. <laughs> but yeah. when you're standing, you know, in in Ital- you know, in, in Italy or in Spain, and you are in what some of the most beautiful places in the world that make wine or Napa, please don't drink champagne. Please try what they make. Please, please, I'm just begging you so that you have a better picture and so that also you're not just a stereotype. Well, and think about how ridiculous this would sound to any of your friends who are not in the wine. Oh, industry. my friends would think that, that, that like they couldn't even believe it. Yeah. yeah. If you're like, oh man, I went, I just, you know, I was just in Rome and we went to this amazing restaurant and, and, you know, we just, it was this incredible thing. And people are like, oh yeah, what did you have to drink? You're like, oh, we drank some champagne and some burgundy. I would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And it's not even right. like the area of Rome is known for its wine particularly, although there's some cool stuff there, but like you're in Italy, drink Italian wine. It's like, it's literally everywhere. The entire fucking country makes wine. I mean, that's what I don't get. It's like, like I mean, and I saw this a lot in, at Vin Italy. Uh, this is where this this all came from. Is you know, Vin Italy, you know, everyone goes out at night, and I get that everyone drank Italian wine all day, but like, come on, you're in Italy. Like, why are you popping champagne? Anyways, that's uh, I'm soapbox. I'm done. <laughs> well, I think it was a good rant, and I think it's important to, as always, to remember that like we need to keep things in perspective in this industry, and and there is a way in which there's so many ways to be out of touch with your with your guests and your readers and your listeners. And, and one of them is just by, you know, kind of drinking in a way that is so anathema to the way that the, that all of us who love wine uh, should do it. And which is, you know, respectfully in, in, in appreciating the the vast world of wine that's out there. You know, we live in this incredibly uh, rich time for, for wine drinking where there is incredible wine from so much of the world that's available. And you should mix up your drinking even at home, but certainly when you travel, I mean, please try the local wine. And, you know, maybe try local beer, try some local whatever else they make, too, because, you know, it's not just about wine, even though, you know, that's often how we tend to view it, especially sommeliers. So, no, but you know what? I think it's I think that's fair. I think it's it's even fair to say, you know, to apply this to the beer world and say, like, hey, I get it. You love IPA. But when you travel, experiencing the the local beer isn't just always trying the local IPA. (laughs) It's the same idea, right? Please try some of the other beers. Please try the beer that the breweries become known for. Please just don't try their IPA and then measure them on whether or not they're good at making IPA. It's the same, right? Like we, we got we we got to be diverse here if we if we want to you know if we want to say that we actually are you know an open you know drinking culture. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that. Well, Zach, uh, you know, it was amazing, amazing talking with you again. Thanks everyone for listening. And again, any thoughts? Podcast at vinepair.com. I'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot. And the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vine Pair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.